Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 27, Best Foot Forward. Five thousand years ago, in late spring or early summer, a man walked across the Alps in what is now the border between Germany and Italy. He was around 45 years old, and his belly was full from a meal of ibex, red deer, herb bread and fruit. He came from a long line of farmers, his antecedents having come to Europe from Anatolia to settle and farm the land. He lived in a community where copper was smelted, but he himself may have been a shepherd used to wandering the mountaintops. He was five foot three tall, small for our era, but probably typical for his time. He was losing his hair and might have been a little overweight. We don't know his real name, but these days we call him Ötzi. It was probably a peaceful day, but it ended in violence. At some point, Ötzi encountered others and there was a fight. Whether he was the aggressor or the victim is not clear. He had cuts to his hands, wrist, face, and a blow to his head. The fatal wound came from an arrow in his left shoulder, which damaged his blood vessels and lodged near his lung. Before he died, though, he managed to shoot an arrow of his own and recover it twice, putting it back into his quiver. Or perhaps someone else put it back. We don't know. The reason I'm telling you about this man is not because of a newfound interest in European society circa 3200 BC. No, it's because of his shoes. For a while, they were the oldest leather shoes ever found in Europe, though that honour has now passed to a pair of shoes found in Armenia. Perhaps because we have studied this man so thoroughly, however, his shoes are better understood. The shoes were wide and waterproof, designed for walking across snow. The soles were made of bearskin, the uppers were deer hide, and the straps were cow hide. There was a netting made of tree bark. Soft grasses were stuffed inside the shoe, acting like socks to provide warmth and insulation. Even 5,000 years ago, these shoes show a complexity of materials that means they had been perfected over time, perhaps by a specialist local cobbler in Ötzi's community. One suggestion is that these shoes could be attached to a lower frame and netting to act as snowshoes. By studying Ötzi's shoes, we learn about the animals that were tracked and hunted by his community, bears and deer, those that were farmed including cattle, the ability to grow, cut and weave with grasses and timber. No one's going to waste animals, so we know about diet. We know that they understood tanning to make leather, smoking to preserve meats, and using different types of animal hide to make clothing too. They used to say that clothes maketh the man. Perhaps today, shoes maketh the man. So that will be the subject of today's deep dive, the humble boot. Ötzi wasn't a skier by the evidence that we have, but it's not that far really from his structured boot with its waterproofing, insulation and lacing to the biathlon boot that we see today. It's February, which means in biathlon land that it's time for the World Championships. 
The first World Championships were held back in 1958 in Saalfelden in Austria. Those championships were the subject of episode 17 of this podcast, called A First Time for Everything. You can find that at skishootrepeat.podbean.com or searching wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also recommend you look at tinyurl.com slash biathlon1958. That's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash biathlon1958. And you'll find a short clip of video from the 1958 Saalfeld World Championships, which underpinned the episode that I just talked about. This year, we're off to Novo Miesto in Czechia, which means we'll have stunning scenery and incredibly passionate crowds. The lovely Czech beer will be flowing and we'll have racing over 11 days to keep us busy. Before we get to that though, let's have a review of the racing from Anholtz and a bit of our deep dive into this week's topic. Anholtz seems like 100 years ago already, but it was only a couple of weekends. The racing was at altitude, which we know can have an effect on performance for those who aren't used to it. We also had some murky skies and gusty winds at various points. The individual races came first. These are usually the longest races at 20 kilometers for men and 15 kilometers for women with four shoots. In Andholz, the distances were slightly shorter, perhaps because of the altitude effect, but there were still four shoots to contend with. The other thing to say is that it was quite warm, so the snow was getting a bit sticky and a lot slower as some races went on. We've seen this in various locations across the Alps recently after a warm January. And there was yet more discussion about the pros and cons of salting tracks to keep them icier and faster. The men's individual got us underway, and we were treated to a reminder of why the greats are great. This season hasn't been stellar for Johannes Tingisbo. He struggled on the range and been uncharacteristically slow from time to time. However, on this day, he was unstoppable. On a day when others were missing four or five in the range because of the conditions, he shot a perfect 20 out of 20. The only other person to do this was George Buter of Romania, who continues to impress with his shooting. And Johannes had the speed and swagger to outlast the others. It was a good day to be called Johannes or Bo. Taye Bo came second for another Bodium, with Johannes Kuhn of Germany in third and Johannes Dahle of Norway in fourth. The bad shooting conditions meant that we had some unexpected names featuring well. Danilo Rithmuller of Germany shot 19 out of 20 and finished 7th. Artem Prima of Ukraine also shot 19 and came 9th. And Otto Invanius of Finland only just missed his very last shot, hitting 19 and coming in 11th. The women's individual brought us another of those collective moments of joy. We had one when Lisa Vitozzi won a couple of weeks ago, but this time the name wasn't Lisa, it was Lena. Lena Heike Gross of Switzerland is having the best season of her career. She looks faster on the skis, but has managed to temper some of her adrenaline and aggression to become a much more composed athlete on the range. Again, others struggled with the conditions. There were some swirling gusts that came through like mini tornadoes, and they particularly impacted Justine Brezabouchet and Marit Skogan. In the end, it was Lena who shot 20 out of 20 and set the early lead at the finish from her start number of 14. She had to wait a long time to be sure. Some of the big names, including some of the best shots, were starting late. She watched Vanessa Voigt shoot 20 out of 20, but just ran out of speed. She watched Lou Jeanne Monod shoot 19, and Julia Simon shoot 18, both of whom made the podium. She even had to wait until Ida Lien, starting number 97, shot 19 out of 20 and came in the top 10 in her return to World Cup racing. But it was Lena's day, and everyone was delighted. 
Shout outs also to Jessica Gislova of Czechia and Ukalex Lutemark of Greenland for shooting 20 out of 22. After some relays, which I confess I haven't caught up on fully yet, we had the big show of the mass starts. The men's mass start is always a bit Norwegian on the start line. They're so dominant in the world rankings right now. But where the individual was a perfect Johannes Tingisbode display, the mass start was perhaps a reminder of how his season has gone. He had a fall on the first lap heading uphill. That seemed to knock him out of sorts. You can never rule him out, and he was somehow able to turn a fall and four misses into a fifth place because, well, he's Johannes. We had some great early showings from Quentin Fionmaier and Emilien Jacqueline of France, hanging in there with the Norwegians for as long as they could. Fionmaier's 20 out of 20 and fourth place finish was a reminder that he hasn't gone away. His five out of five on the final stand was glorious. Sadly, the speed isn't quite where it needs to be, and he was overhauled by both Johannes Dahle and Verbjörn Sjörum, who came in second and third. The day's winner? Vettel Christensen, who was aggressive, pushing the pace and skiing angry. His final shoot was perhaps an FU to anyone who has doubted him. There's something about the mass start that really seems to work for him. The women's mass start was a signature Julia Simon performance. She pushed the pace early in the race, wanting to shake off some of her competitors and, as always, trusting her ski speed and her determination to get her back in if, if needed. She shot quickly and accurately, pulling out time on her nearest rivals each time they came into the range. There was one mistake in the first standing shoot, which let Lou Jamino take the lead. But Julia fought back and shot rapid, fire, shot rapid fire in the final shoot to take a lead out into the last lap. Lou played the sensible game as she often does. She has a wise head on her shoulders given that she's only 25 and in her first full season at the World Cup level. She got her 20 out of 20 and took second place. Lena Heike Gross also shot 19 and came in third. A great weekend for her. Vanessa Voigt shot 60 out of 60 across the whole weekend and came in fourth in the mass start. One name to mention from a little lower down, Anna Maria Lampic of Slovenia, who shot 14 out of 20 but still had the speed to finish in 14th place, just behind the Erberg sisters and ahead of Ingrid Tandrevold, who all shot better. On to this week's deep dive, and we're about to get obsessed with feet. More specifically with boots and their inevitable companion, bindings. There's been news recently of biathletes testing new types of bindings. The bindings connect the boots and the skis to try and gain an advantage. Typically, you're connecting boot and binding near the toes. But if you can get closer to the ball of the foot, maybe you can exert, exert more strength through the ski with the same or less effort. That's the theory. But where did it all begin? First of all, there never used to be such a thing as ski boots. There were skis and there were boots. Farmers and hunters and our prototype biathletes would wear their everyday boots and bind them to their skis with simple leather straps across the top of the foot. There were two main goals, keeping your feet dry and keeping your skis on. Dry feet meant waterproof boots, leather covered with animal fats or wax to keep the water out. Keeping your skis on was more of a challenge. Imagine you've got a pair of sandals on that are just held in place by a simple strap across the top of your foot. Now imagine pushing off on your foot to take a big step and you can see easily that the sandal, or in this case the ski, might go off on its own while your foot goes backwards. Sami skiers adapted their boots to have a toe that curled upwards. That helped to keep the strap in place so it couldn't slide off. And it may also be why Santa's elves have pointy-toed boots, 
but that's another story. Over time, and in the move to more challenging terrain, early skiers wanted a bit more solidity, so a fixing was introduced at the back of the boot. A strap around the heel made of leather or woven willow, or later a buckled strap that you could adjust to suit you. Tighter connections meant the need for a tougher boot so that the soles didn't get crushed. And steel or wood was embedded in the sole to start to create the rigidity that we now associate with ski boots. By the late 1800s, ski boots had started to become an industrial product, rather than simply being made by the local cobbler. The mass production of boots and shoes, first for the military and then for consumer use, meant that machines took over from nimble fingers. By 1900, there were mass-produced boots available across Europe. Production had changed, but design hadn't. Typical ski boots were leather, with a rigid sole that extended slightly to meet the bindings, a bit of extra room at the toes to fit your woolly socks, and strong laces. Boots were the same, no matter whether you were classic skiing through the forests of Finland or testing your alpine metal at the Chamonix Olympics. It was only in 1928 that an Italian ski racer introduced a cable binding to hold down the heel, and this was the moment that alpine boots and cross-country boots diverged from their common ancestor. Alpine boots became much more rigid, first with heavy materials like steel, and later with lightweight plastic and fibreglass. Alpine boots needed to be bound tightly to the ski in order to absorb the pressures and torques of extreme terrain and high speeds. It was all about your ability to push down into the mountain with your edges, and you needed solid boots and rigid ankles to do this. Cross-country and ski jumping boots still needed flexibility though. For both sports, the heel needs to lift from the ski. Cross-country is much more like walking or running, so you need the flexibility in the sole of the boot and you only need a toe binding. Boots are designed to help transfer energy from skier to ski and to propel forward, but also to have the flexibility to manage uphill bursts. In fact, boots and skis are much more suited to uphills and flats than to downhill sections, which is why biathletes and cross-country skiers often look least comfortable when they're hooning down a slope. There are different attachment types to bind the ski boot to the ski. Gone are the leather straps over the boot. Now there are pin binding mechanisms which you step onto, with different numbers of pins based on a little bit on preference, but also on what you're aiming to do. A cruisy day out on the skis or something a bit more feisty. The front toe binding also gives you the opportunity to do cool tricks. The incomparable Martin Foucard had a lovely end of race move. Whilst competitors crossed the line, usually behind him, and collapsed into a heap, he would have crossed the line, slowed down, unclipped his binding and stepped out of his skis without stopping, as if to say, look how easy that was for me. In sport there are always mind games going on, and that was such a great one the signal that it sent at the end of the race that he hadn't even had to try. He also had a very good poker face. It's worth noting that just as there was a divergence between alpine and cross-country ski boots, so there's been a further split between boots designed for cross classic cross-country and boots for skate technique. As a reminder, classic cross-country generally has the skis parallel to each other and looks most like walking on snow. The push is forward and the lines are quite straight. Skating technique is, as you might guess, more like ice skating or roller skating. Your push is offered a diagonal and you're trying to transfer as much energy as possible from your push into the ski in the snow. So you need more rigidity along the foot and more support for your ankles which could twist more easily. You also need skis with more defined edges. And you need to be able to lift the ski up a little more. 
You're not shuffling along. You're picking up the ski to plant it as you skate forward. So you need a stronger connection between boot and ski, usually helped by a less flexible sole than a classic cross-country boot. Competition level boots these days are made on a carbon chassis with a carbon cuff at the ankle to provide support and stiffness without being heavy. As is so often the case, the default customer for ski boots was a man. So they were designed with men's feet, leg and body shapes and weight distribution in mind. Things have improved with alpine ski boots for women, for example, recognising that women tend to have rounder calves that start lower in the leg. So you need a shorter boot with a bit more give where the calf begins. Cross-country boot designers have recognised these differences too and are innovating much more. Women's feet are typically narrower and weight distribution through the skis means that you need a different philosophy and approach. In this world of data and sensors, researchers are also looking at pressure coming through the boot into the ski, where on the foot pressure is applied, and how to make micro-adjustments to each biathlete's setup to suit their individual physiology and skiing style and to minimise the risk of injury. Most of the top-level biathletes will now have sponsorship deals with equipment manufacturers, whether with their national federation or occasionally on their own. So it's not always up to the biathlete what boots they get to wear. Gone are the days of going to the local village cobbler to get your boots made. Now we are in an industrial and material science world where every tweak could lead to marginal gains on the snow and that little extra bit of competitive advantage. And we can't think of the boots on their own anymore, nor just that sibling relationship between boot and binding. Now the whole system of boot, binding, ski, wax, suit, poles and the biathlete themselves form part of the engineering of sport. So much of sport is mechanised now that it could just become a battle of the equipment companies. Look at what's happening with distance running, where the shoe manufacturers are innovating for speed and no one's quite sure what's being done by the athlete and what by the shoe. After a while, the rules of sport can become the rules of sporting equipment. Look at the rulebook for Formula One and it's more about the technology of the cars than anything else. We do need these rules to ensure that there is a level playing, for playing field for athletes and to help overcome some of the imbalances between wealthy and less wealthy nations. That's what federations are great at. And we need federations that can monitor development and innovation in ways which enhance and improve a sport while also celebrating the people at the heart of it. Perhaps that's why biathlon is such a meaningful sport to so many of us. For all that you can engineer and manufacture, at the heart of a biathlon race, you have competition between muscles and blood flow, VO2 max, nerve, steadiness and your ability to handle pressure. Whatever the equipment, that's what the sport is about and that's why we keep tuning in. It's the time of the season for the World Championships this year from Nova Miesto in Czechia. We have a full slate of racing over 11 days. Despite a storm coming in recently and warm temperatures threatening the tracks, things look good to go. The racing starts this Wednesday, the 7th of February, with a mixed relay, that's at 4.20pm UK time. Then on Friday the 9th of February we have the Women's Sprint at 4.20. On Saturday the 10th of February at 4.05 we have the Men's Sprint. Then on Sunday we have the two pursuit races with the women at 1.30 UK time and the men at 4.05. There's a day off on Monday. Um, then we resume on Tuesday the 13th of February with the women's individual race. Wednesday the 14th of February with the men's individual, both of those just after 4pm UK time. On Thursday the 15th, 
we have the single mixed relay at 5pm. Saturday the 17th sees a double header of relays with the women going off at 12.45 and the men at 3.30. And then we culminate as is traditional with the mass start races on Sunday the 18th of February, the women at 1.15 and the men at 3.30. Things to note, we're starting with the sprint and the pursuit which means that the skiers will have a lot of kilometres in their legs by the time we get to the longer individual races. Managing energy levels, recovery and fatigue are going to be crucial. Managing mental well-being is also important. A bad day in the first race could stick with you throughout, so the coaches will be working with their teams on quickly forgetting the bad days, learning, getting into the unconscious flow of repetition and having a solid plan for who's going to thrive in each discipline. Last year's World Championships in Oberhof was completely dominated by Johannes Tingis Bo on the men's side, to the point where we renamed the arena Boberhof. He won five golds, a silver and a bronze, meddling in every race he started. Chief bridesmaid was Stora Holm Ligrid, who picked up three silver medals, plus a relay gold and a sprint bronze. The women's side was much more mixed and competitive, with successes for Hannah Erberg, Julia Simon and the now-retired Denise Herman Vick. It's funny looking back on the re results from last year and remembering the outstanding women's relay win for Italy and the Super Sunday in the mass starts for Sweden, with Hannah Erberg and Seb Samuelsson winning their respective races. As to this year, there are some old favourites, but let's look for some new names. Tommaso Giacomel will want to bounce back after a disappointing weekend in Antholz, and he has the speed to do it if he can control his shooting a little better. Johannes Dali feels like he's been around forever, but is still only 26 and is skiing faster than anyone. Eric Perrault of France has proved very consistent with the rifle and could be consistently in or near the top 10 throughout. On the women's side, it's hard to look past Julia Simon, who's coming into form at the right time and just needs to figure out which races to focus on. I'd expect her to medal in the pursuit and to potentially win the mass start. Lou Jeanne has proved that she can win this year, but perhaps needs others to falter to do so. It would be great to see Francisca Preuss and Lisa Vitozzi doing well. Again, they're both hugely popular and have had their quite public challenges with the sport over the years. And I really hope that the home team can do well. There have been some brilliant performances on the range this year, from Jessica Gislova, Teresa Vobornikova, and you know that Marketa Davidova and Lucy Shavatova have the potential to do well. If they can get it right and avoid the nerves, that's a great relay team. I'll be joining in the predictions community on the Biathlon World website, pitting my wits against the real experts, but it's the unpredictability that we really love. It's an opportunity for someone like Otto Invenius to shoot clear and be in the top 10 like he was in Antholz, or a Lynn Person to just do her stuff and win medals like she did in Oberhof last year. It's the wide open possibilities for newcomers, the Jacquemels and Campbell Wrights, and the chance to demonstrate that experience is what counts for the likes of Simon Ada and Benny Doll. I, for one, can't wait. One last thing. A pair of biathlon boots will set you back a few hundred euros. But what about spending a little more? The most expensive shoes in the world are the Moonstar shoes, designed by Italian Antonio Vietri and launched to the world in 2019. They are high-heeled, open-toed women's sandals. The heels are solid gold and designed to look like the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Each pair of shoes has 30 carats of diamonds across the top of the feet and includes a piece of a meteorite which crashed into earth in Argentina in 1576. The shoes cost $19.9 million 
and I honestly feel quite ill telling you about them. I can categorically say that they are ugly, trashy, not my thing, and no good for biathlon. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on X at Ski Shoot Repeat and on Instagram, Ski Shoot Repeat. Please do get in touch to tell me what's right and what's wrong. Uh, this podcast is built more on love than on knowledge, so I do expect to get fact-checked. Also, let me know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. I'll be back soon to review the racing in Nova Miesto, look forward to the rest of the season, and see where our next deep dive will take us. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.